You're listening to Conversations on Strategy. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Department of the Army, the U.S. Army War College, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Conversations on Strategy welcomes Ronald Bierce, author of Understanding Critical Infrastructure, featured in Enabling NATO's Collective Defense, Critical Infrastructure and Resiliency. Bierce is an expert in critical infrastructure protection and national preparedness with more than 23 years of experience in the U.S. Department of Defense, Homeland Security, and Treasury. Ron, welcome to Conversations on Strategy. You recently contributed to a book, Enabling NATO's Collective Defense, Critical Infrastructure Security and Resiliency. I'm looking forward to hearing about your chapter, but first, thank you for being here. Well, thanks, Steph. Yeah, I'm happy to discuss that with you today. What is critical infrastructure? Although there's no real global or standard or universal definition of critical infrastructure, most, if not all, European and NATO nations which have a national CIP or CISR policy or national plan define critical infrastructure as those physical and cyber systems and facilities and assets that are so vital that their incapacity or their destruction would have a debilitating impact on a nation's national security, economic security, or national public health and safety. We kind of understand that most people do as those facilities and services that are so vital to the basic operations of a given society, like the one we live in or those without which the functioning of a given society would be greatly impaired. In our book, for example, we talk about critical infrastructure sectors. Here in the United States, for example, we have 16 critical infrastructure sectors where assets and systems and networks, whether they're physical or virtual, considered so vital to the United States that their incapacitation or destruction would have a debilitating effect on our national economic security or public health and safety. Those sectors include here in the United States and for most Western nations, the same types and same sectors, uh, such as the chemical sector or the dam sector, commercial facilities, communication sector, critical manufacturing, the defense industrial base. Emergency services obviously is one, energy, financial services sector, food, agriculture, government facilities, healthcare and public healthcare sector, information, information and technology, nuclear reactors, materials and waste sector. The transportation infrastructure sector is huge as well, as well as water and wastewater systems. So there are a number of economic areas, and we call them sectors, that have critical infrastructure, the loss of which would really be a problem. Within NATO, Allied Command Operations defines critical infrastructure as a nation's infrastructure, assets, facilities, systems, networks, and processes that support the military, economic, political, and or social life on which a nation and or NATO depends. NATO mission readiness depends on the assured availability of critical infrastructure. Let there be no mistake about that. Critical infrastructure, which I should mention, is mostly owned by the private sector. For example, during large NATO operations or exercises, about 90%, that's 90% of military transport relies on civilian ships and civilian railways or civilian aircraft. Why is critical infrastructure important? Critical infrastructure is vital because it enables a nation's productivity and quality of life and economic progression 
by driving economic growth and creating jobs and improving efficiency. It also provides essential services such as energy and water, electricity and transportation. It also connects communities via transport and communications networks, which enables the flow of goods and information, not just across a country, but between countries and across the world. Another reason why it's vital has to do with the fact that it's highly interconnected today, Stephanie, meaning that critical infrastructure systems often depend on other areas or other critical infrastructure to operate. If it is severely disrupted or destroyed, it can cause severe catastrophic consequences locally, regionally, nationally, and even globally. And also, if it happens in one sector, you can have cascading events that can cross over into other sectors as well. An increasing number of nations depend on critical infrastructure located in another country, or worse, controlled or operated or owned directly or indirectly by a foreign adversary. And yet another reason is that millions of critical infrastructure systems and the gazillions of devices which connect to them are connected to the internet. And because of that, you know, we see that there is that vast increase of vulnerability attached with those devices. We've all witnessed how COVID-19 and the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine have impacted critical infrastructure. The critical infrastructure of NATO and partner nations, those nations face a rising and unprecedented wave of malicious cyber activities and destabilizing and devastating consequences. And public and private entities that are indispensable to the functioning and well-being and cohesion of allied societies, such as energy providers, telecommunications operators, or banks and hospitals, and we're certainly aware of the current situation, hybrid warfare and real actual warfare at the conventional level in Europe and Ukraine and, and seeing how critical infrastructure is being targeted that way. In the context of keeping critical infrastructure safe and functioning, what's the difference between critical infrastructure protection and critical infrastructure security and resilience? Humankind has been protecting critical infrastructure for thousands of years, Stephanie. It goes back a long time. The Peloponnesian Wars infrastructure, then the nations fought over, included ships and grain and ports and brick walls around cities, if you will, and wells where water was. And, you know, a thousand years later, you had the fall of Rome. In the fall of Rome, you had the contribution of the aqueducts falling apart for a variety of reasons. But again, critical infrastructure in the Roman Empire, the shift that has happened over the last 20 years alone is due to the fact that stakeholders have learned that it's almost impossible to protect critical infrastructure from all the growing risk factors that they face where we are moving from the protection of critical infrastructure to securing it and making it more resilient against threats. For example, when we talk about security, security in the CISR, the the S, if you will, means reducing the likelihood of successful attacks against critical infrastructure or the effects of natural or man-made disasters through the application of physical means or defensive cybersecurity measures. And resilience is the ability of critical infrastructure to resist, absorb, recover from, or successfully adapt to changing conditions, including attacks. The concept of critical infrastructure security and resilience 
is particularly useful to inform policies that mitigate the consequences of such events and speak to the vital need again for nations to develop and implement a comprehensive risk management strategy. Karen McDowell, who 10 years ago was an information security analyst at the University of Virginia, said something that still haunts me and should actually haunt everybody listening in today. I believe she said, public opinion isn't going to lead the push to better protection of critical infrastructure, since most people aren't aware of the security issues and don't even know that they are at risk, let alone understand the risk to critical infrastructure. What are the core areas of activity or work streams involved in implementing CISR policy in and across the NATO Atlantic Treaty Organization nations? There are really three essential tasks. Assess the risk, improve security, enhance resilience, right? It's all in those three. That's the basic process. But the process of accomplishing those three tasks can be extraordinarily complex and a continuing challenge because it requires numerous, what I call, streams of work to be performed by a number of stakeholders, such as government agencies, whether they're federal, state, regional, other types of government agencies, the owners and operators in the private sector themselves of critical infrastructure, academicians, people who do research, subject matter experts, international organizations, technology vendors, people that run the ISACs. I mean, there's just many, many, many stakeholders out there. But what's really, really important is that the major work streams basically include the following. All of these are discussed in the book and they and how they're applied at different uh, at levels and, and case studies and whatnot. But you need to establish very clear roles and responsibilities for all stakeholders. That's a major work stream, just doing that. Identifying and determining the criticality of a nation's infrastructure. I mean, the protection of critical infrastructure is a national responsibility. NATO doesn't go out and identify what's critical for other nations. It's up to that nation to do that. It's up to that nation to figure out what they're going to do. NATO can certainly help them. Other nations help each other as well. And uh, we certainly want to help our partner nations. Another big work stream here is mapping critical infrastructure dependencies and interdependencies. Determining critical infrastructure vulnerabilities, can't say enough of that. It's a work stream, important one. Using applicable risk management, risk analysis, risk management tools, if you will, risk assessment tools and approaches. A lot of different critical infrastructure sectors have defined some very good tools to use to do risk-based assessments. They are available to NATO and NATO partner nations. Establishing crisis management capabilities is important. Another key work stream is establishing public-private partnerships between government and private sector owners and operators of critical infrastructure, establishing and implementing collaboration and information sharing mechanisms between government and the owners and operators is also important, developing and exercising continuity of operations and information technology, disaster recovery plans, providing physical and cybersecurity and resilience measures is a big work stream, if you will. Ensuring the integrity and security and continuity of critical infrastructure supply chains is huge. Expanding opportunities to deliver CISR education and training. Another key work stream is one that's dear to my heart is implementing a robust, when I say robust, I mean thorough test training and exercise program to determine the extent to which a nation's current CISR policy or legislation or plan procedures, systems, research and development efforts, you name it, are either meeting, 
falling below or exceeding prescribed requirements, established standards. Another key part of the work stream that's vital to this is fostering the local, regional, national, and international cooperation, collaboration, coordination, communication, and concentration that is required to produce results. So one of the reasons why this book was actually published is because more nations need to be developing and implementing a national CISR policy. There are many reasons, again, why countries haven't started down this road, Steph. Let me just share with you the top five really quick. The top three, basically, and I believe these are in the correct order, are money, money, and money. The fourth reason is that most countries have been protecting things that they deem important or critical the same way for many years. The military protects W and X. The Minister of Interior protects Y. And the Department of Beta protects Z. And rarely do they coordinate their efforts due to turf, territory, and tradition. And the fifth reason evolves around the realization that CISR is complex. And it is one of the most difficult things a country can do, even if it had the money and resources to do it. The good news in this step is that the book that we are discussing today, and it's a follow-on book, provides several lessons to be learned, as I call them, good practices, case studies, methods, and tools, approaches, and experiences that are designed to promote security and resilience of all NATO partner nations and strengthen their ability to function in a way that most people want them to during crisis management and to support collective defense or external operations. Failing to achieve CISI goals and objectives is going to reduce NATO's mission capability and adversely impact member states' collective societies because critical infrastructure is the foundation on which vital society and economic functions depend. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Steph. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you and, uh, and your listening audience. And again, it's a, it's a hot topic. It always will be. And uh, it's a great way for nations to strengthen their capabilities. And, and for the avid reader uh, in national security, if he really or she really wants to wrap their head around why things are happening in today's world and how we get a better grip on preventing some of those bad things from happening, these books also represent good reads. So with that, uh, take care. Same to you. Thank you. Learn more about critical infrastructure, why it matters, and how to protect it in the monograph. Visit press.armywarcollege.edu slash monographs slash 955. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, you can find us on any major podcast platform. 